The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. My agent, who's English, said, you know, but everybody knows Mary Shelley, and almost no one knows Mary Wollstonecraft in the same way. Right. And I think for Americans, when they hear Mary Wollstonecraft, they immediately think Shelley, the writer of Frankenstein, yep. because she wrote as so often Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Yeah. And we, particularly as Americans, are unless you've studied, you know, women's studies, you really are not introduced to Mary Wollstonecraft, who's considered by so many people the mother of feminism. Yeah. And really one of the great 18th century writers and thinkers, bar none. So when I started to read about Mary Wollstonecraft, I became completely captivated by her and, and compelled. And it just seemed obvious that she would generate a lot of energy in me and could easily sustain a novel if I could figure out how to write it. Mm. That's author and screenwriter Samantha Silva talking about the genesis of her new book, Love and Fury, a novel of Mary Wollstonecraft. Wollstonecraft is part of our October this year, and perhaps that's appropriate since she was the mother of the incredible Mary Shelley of Frankenstein fame. But Wollstonecraft deserves more of our attention than to just be Mary Shelley adjacent. She was herself an educator, a translator, an incredible writer and thinker, a pioneering feminist, and a force of nature. She is alive and active. Virginia Woolf said a century after Wollstonecraft's death, she argues and experiments. We hear her voice and trace her influence even now among the living. End quote. True then and true today, especially thanks to our guest, Samantha Silva, whose novel focuses on the 11-day period after Wollstonecraft gave birth to Mary Shelley. Those would be the last days of Mary Wollstonecraft's life. Silva and Wollstonecraft, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome, everyone. It's another October episode. I'm still in love with this month. It's a good time to be alive. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast, etc., etc. Great show today with a novelist who likes to dive in and explore these minds of others, of other writers. I love this. Let's. I'll give you a little Wollstonecraft background before we hear from Samantha Silva, our guest today. But first... Let's hear from a listener. Subject, hello, and thank you from the trail. Dear Jack, I'm writing to thank you for your wonderful podcast. The History of Literature is the first podcast that I've ever listened to on a somewhat regular basis. Since April 2021, how do you say that? April 2021, that's what I should say. (laughs) I always mess that up. Since April 2021, I've been on a journey hiking 2,193 miles from Georgia to Maine on the Appalachian Trail, carrying everything I need to survive on my back. Out here, after the tent and sleeping bag and stove and water filter, a book is a very heavy luxury item to have, and after 20-some miles over numerous mountain peaks, I'm often much too exhausted to read when I get to camp. Enter the history of literature. I discovered your podcast somewhere in Virginia. I have now made it to Maine, the last state, and you have accompanied me for hundreds of miles up and down countless mountains. Your podcast is a way for me to still stay in touch with literature, even out here in the deep woods. As could be expected, the episodes on Thoreau and Emerson were especially interesting to me, even though both of them somehow neglect to mention the hordes of bloodthirsty mosquitoes, the misery of sloshing through knee-deep mud after the fourth continuous day of rain, Trenchfoot is real, by the way, and it's not pretty, or the absolute red-eyed fury that overcomes you when there is yet another mountain peak standing between you and camp. 
One of my favorite episodes was the one on the Harlem Renaissance. I wrote my bachelor's thesis on Gene Toomer and Kane, and I'm still holding out for an episode on him. Smiley face. Well, save that thought. I might have a smiley face in return for you. <laughs> I now have less than... Email continues. I now have less than 200 miles to go and still have plenty of episodes downloaded to keep me entertained and engaged while I keep walking northbound. I truly enjoy listening to you and Mike discuss the top 10 literary villains or the seven deadly sins or hear all about science fiction as a genre. Thank you once again for all your work. Warm regards, Marin. Well, Marin, what a journey you are on. That red-eyed fury. Ooh. There's some synergy here. Love and Fury, the title of the novel by today's guest. We'll hear how Mary Wollstonecraft channeled that love and that fury. I can only imagine that you channeled your fury into attacking that final peak, charging up as fast as you can, screaming like a berserker. No? Maybe that's just me. Well, guess what, Marin? Your wish is my command. I, too, was fascinated by Gene Toomer and Kane, and so we do have an episode on him in our archives. It is episode 94, Smoke, Dusk, and Fire, the Gene Toomer Story. Your wish is my command. Four and a half years ago. <laughs> Good luck to you, Marin. Stay safe and happy listening. Let's take a quick break and then come back with some Wallstonecraft. We'll do that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Let me begin with a conversation I overheard when I was in college. The year was 1992. The speaker was probably one of my guardian angel slash Italian professors, or maybe it was a visiting professor or one of my friends. Women aren't naturally inferior, they were saying. They have just been boxed into a corner by society. Throughout history, they have not been given equal access to education, and even when they have... They've been pushed toward frivolous things, pushed away from math and science and medicine and law and business, and toward less serious and less threatening topics. They're taught to hide their intelligence, to be feminine, not to be assertive or confrontational. Feminines in quotes, by the way. To be ladylike, to smile and nod and look pretty. And when they've risen up to overcome this, they're treated like monsters called names, told they're being bitchy or catty or shrill. Your voice just grates, says society. You complain too much. No one wants to hear this. No one wants to hear you. The year, as I said, was 1992, and every argument in this conversation could have come from the lips or the pen of Mary Wollstonecraft, who was writing the same things with equal passion and urgency in 1792. 200 years ahead of her time, or maybe we should say that 1992 was 200 years late, at least 200 years. So, 
Today's role for women is another topic altogether. Let's go back to the late 18th century. Who was this lone voice, this prophet? What gave her the courage and the conviction? Mary Wollstonecraft was born in April of 1759, the second of seven children. Her father was one of those people who inherited money and squandered it, trying to be a farmer when he didn't know how, investing in schemes that didn't pan out. He would get drunk and abuse his wife. As a teenager, Mary used to lie outside her mother's bedroom door to protect her mother from her father's violence. From a young age, Mary fought for women against the brutish behavior of the men around them. All this came at a cost. It stepped on toes, damaged relationships, earned the opprobrium of quote-unquote polite society, which was polite within the framework of patriarchy. To be polite meant not challenging the status quo. But Wollstonecraft said, well, who is this status quo helping? Why not challenge the status quo when it's this lopsided? She had at least two deep friendships with other women. Jane Arden, the daughter of an amateur, self-styled intellectual, and Fanny Blood, an illustrator. Wollstonecraft left home in her late teens and worked for a few years as an assistant to a widow, but they didn't get along well, and after Wollstonecraft returned home to help her mother, who was ill and dying, she looked for new opportunities. She moved in with Fanny Blood's family, a fascinating period that our guest is going to talk about a bit today, so I'll leave that alone for now. Fanny Blood died in 1785, when Wollstonecraft was about 26, and although she was devastated, it was in the aftermath of this event that her career as a writer and thinker took off. For the next 10 or so years, her life was full of one triumph after another, and also one heartbreak after another. At least the triumphs appear like triumphs to us in retrospect. It seems they perhaps did not feel all that triumphant to Mary. She was successful but forever controversial, earning as much criticism and harsh judgment as admiration from the classes of people who were upset by her advanced views and what Wolfe later called her, quote, experiments in living, end quote. What did this mean? Well, she and her young friends had already imagined their way into a world without men. Here's how they would do it, they thought and discussed. Or not without men, but not under the tyranny of men, avoiding the worst of it, avoiding marriage, for one thing. Drawing upon her experience as a governess, she wrote Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. She wrote novels. She found work as a translator. This was one of those experiments, seeking to earn a living as a writer rather than a teacher or governess, a pretty radical step for a woman in her day in her position. It's a new genus, she told her sister. I will be the first. She wrote reviews. She made friends with Thomas Paine and other intellectuals. She had a relationship with a married artist named Henry Fuseli. In 1792, she went to France to see the aftermath of the French Revolution. This was already a topic that had made her famous. So let's back up for a moment. We're building toward her masterpiece, by the way. In 1789, the French Revolution changed everything. Americans may be surprised to hear that it was the French Revolution, not the earlier American Revolution, that truly transformed the geopolitical world. The American Revolution was a crack that would later spider its way into something big. The French Revolution was a chasm, monumental from the beginning, the sort of change that occurs when a continent cracks in half. In 1790, the conservative Edmund Burke wrote his classic work, Reflections on the Revolution in France. Wollstonecraft was enraged. She spent a month writing a rebuttal, which she called A Vindication of the Rights of Men. At first, this was published anonymously, but her name was revealed with the second edition. One can imagine the backlash to this work, published by a woman and arguing from within the monarchy of England that the French Revolution was a triumph of the right people. Burke said, Marie Antoinette was an elegant symbol of the French regime, quote, surrounded by furies from hell in the abused shape of the vilest of women, end quote. Vile women, Wollstonecraft scoffed at this, women who earned their money by selling vegetables and fish, she said, who were never allowed to be educated. 
This angry throng that Burke condescends to, well, what had that regime ever done for them? What was this queen doing other than demanding their love and fealty as her birthright? Enjoy your lives, peasants. Do try to be civil. Do try to be polite. Do try to be grateful. Wollstonecraft headed to France, where she argued with the French revolutionaries that they should educate girls as well as boys. She also had an affair with an American named Gilbert Imlay. They slept together, even though they weren't married, leading to a pregnancy, all of this potentially scandalous in the era, of course. Imlay was kind of a wild guy, a diplomat, an opportunist who wrote novels and who used the British blockade to help make him some money. Wollstonecraft was at risk now, so Imlay lied to the embassy and said they were married, which meant that Wollstonecraft was an American citizen, which protected her while she was in Paris. Many of her fellow Brits were arrested and thrown in prison, and a few were even executed. Her relationship with Imlay fell apart. She may have attempted suicide at one point, but it appears that Imlay saved her from what may have been an overdose of laudanum. She traveled and wrote travel narratives. Finally, she returned to England. Still in love with Imlay, she jumped into the River Thames to drown herself, but a stranger jumped in and rescued her. She was writing again now, but as her previous experience had taught her, the reception of her as a woman writing was different from how it had been when she was anonymous and assumed to be a man. Now her writing was viewed as full of passion rather than reason. Those who were on her side, though, whether they started there before they read or, or were persuaded by the force of her arguments, appreciated her writing. One man said her travel book about a trip to Scandinavia could have been written to make a man in love with its author. His name was William Godwin, and although the two of them had argued in the past, they now fell in love. Both of them were opposed to marriage politically, Godwin had argued that it should be abolished. But when Mary became pregnant, they decided that they would do it, get married to help the infant. Unfortunately, the marriage was doomed, happy and stable, but doomed, short-lived, doomed to be short-lived. After giving birth to their child, a daughter, Wollstonecraft only had a few days left to live. She died of septicemia at the age of 38. Let's talk about two legacies. We jumped right over her major work, written in 1792 when she was 33. This was in direct response to Talleyrand and the report on education that he delivered to the French National Assembly. Men are destined to live on the stage of the world, he wrote. The paternal home is better for the education of women. They have less need to learn to deal with the interests of others than to accustom themselves to a calm and secluded life, end quote. Wollstonecraft responded with an 87,000-word essay full of passion and compassion, reason and rationality, literally sense and sensibility. Her foes in the essay are those like Rousseau, who argued that women should be raised and educated to serve men. Men's pleasure would be their occupation. The men will be happiest that way. All kinds of arguments were advanced to suggest that this was the natural order, God's plan, the best design, biologically determined. Wollstonecraft cast all this aside. This is a distortion. It's this way only if we fail to see the truth, was her view, and furthermore, it's destructive. My main argument, she wrote, is built on this simple principle— that if woman be not prepared by education to become the companion of man, she will stop the progress of knowledge and virtue, for truth must be common to all. End quote. She also noted that men were held to a different standard, just given a pass for conduct, that in women would be viewed critically. The other legacy, of course, is that daughter of hers. Mary Shelley grew up as a thinker herself, also someone who didn't mind living in experimental ways and whose work Frankenstein and other books were essential in the history of science fiction and literature in general. There's no one quite like Mary Shelley in the history of literature, and Wollstonecraft too, for that matter. The two of them stand alone. Okay. We have just scratched the surface with Wollstonecraft and her writings. Let's save that for another day 
so we can bring out our guest, Samantha Silva. We'll hear more from her about her approach to writing novels, her immersion in the world of Wollstonecraft, and the pleasures and insights that her novel, Love and Fury, can give to the rest of us. We will have that conversation after this. Okay, joining me now is author Samantha Silva, whose new novel, Love and Fury, a novel of Mary Wollstonecraft, tells a heart-wrenching story about the pioneering feminist. Samantha Silva, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So you're not new to this type of book. You previously wrote one about Charles Dickens called Mr. Dickens and His Carol. Uh, When did you become interested in the literary figures of the late 18th and early 19th century? I would say that I backed into it more than that I had a passion for it. It's a passion for me now. Mm. But I started, I cut my teeth as a writer, as a screenwriter for about 15 years. Mm. And at one point, I was not a, you know, a, a Dickensian by, by any stretch. I sort of read the, you know, the Dickens that is required in American high schools. I think mm-hmm. you read you know, Tale of Two Cities. And at some point you run into a Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol, and, sure. You know, may, maybe Great Expectations if you have a good teacher. <laughs> right. But I was you know, I wasn't a huge Dickens fan. But a friend of mine who is also a writer called me at one point and said, we should write a ghost story anthology movie about Dickens coming up with a Christmas Carol by sitting around telling ghost stories, which the Victorians mm. did and loved to do around the hearth. Yeah. She said, I'd read, you know, I read that that's how he came up with the idea for the carol. So I started to look into it. And in fact, that wasn't the story, the origin story of the carol at all. And so we just let it drop. And Mm. I would say two years later, I literally sat upright in bed one morning and knew the whole story. Oh, wow. Yeah. As if it had been, you know, gifted to me in a dream. The whole plot. The whole plot. Yeah. I just knew it. And so I sat down to write the screenplay. I wrote the screenplay. I got it was actually the screenplay that led me to an agent in the movie business, which was great. Mm-hmm. And over the next you know twelve years, we optioned that screenplay four different times to four different companies. Mm. So, you know, that resulted in several heartbreaking near misses with the big screen. Yeah. But I understood that the that the story worked and and so after a while, I thought, you know, I want this to have a life. It's somehow not having a life as a as a movie at the moment. And I maybe I'll try my hand at adapting it into a novel. So I, right. you know, it took me three years to write the draft that successfully got me a literary agent and, you know, in a two-book deal with Flatiron Books, which was wonderful. But that's a, that's a long way of saying you know, the curse and blessing of a two-book deal right. for, for a debut author is that you have to write a second book. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Mr. Dickens and his Carol was very successful. Yes, we've done, we've done very well with so it. So did they want a something in a similar vein? As, is, is this the second book in the two-book deal? This, the Love and Fury is the second book in yeah. the two-book deal. But the, the way it came about really is that I was you know, throwing around ideas with my wonderful agent, Emma Perry. And, you know, it's hard. It was hard for me, especially because it wasn't as if, you know, I decided to write a novel about Dickens and just sat down to do it. And there it was. And and it's in the world and a success. I had lived with Charles Dickens and this story Mm. for 15 years. Yeah by the time it, it, it was a novel and it almost felt like a betrayal to leave him. You know, he was, he was <laughs> my guy. I mean, I, you know, right. he was my muse in a way. And so I think that, you know, one thought was that, well, historical fiction might be my thing. I mean, I do write, I write other things and I write short fiction and in my own voice, my contemporary voice, but somehow I'd really been able to, you know, for my own part, feel like I was channeling Dickens and I had mm. so much fun with it. And so there was a thought, well, what, you know, what other literary figures are out there that maybe that maybe you'd want to tackle? And uh, and around that time, it was the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein. Mm. My agent who's English said, you know, but everybody knows Mary Shelley 
and almost no one knows Mary Wollstonecraft in the same way. Right. And I think for Americans, when they hear Mary Wollstonecraft, they immediately think Shelley, the writer of Frankenstein, yep. because she wrote as so often Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Yeah. And we, particularly as Americans, are unless you've studied, you know, women's studies, you really are not introduced to Mary Wollstonecraft, who's considered by so many people the mother of feminism. Yeah. And really one of the great 18th century writers and thinkers, bar none. So when I started to read about Mary Wollstonecraft, I became completely captivated by her and, and compelled. And it just seemed obvious that she would generate a lot of energy in me and could easily sustain a novel if I could figure out how to write it. Mm. Well, before we leave Dickens behind, similarities between the two, one just seems to be their, I guess, just their power and their energy. I think they do have in common this larger-than-life quality. Mm. And it is it is a lot about about energy. I mean, for for, for Dickens, it was it was you know he was a kinetic guy. Yeah. He really, you know, I think he probably suffered from what we now would call bipolar disorder of mm. some kind. Yeah. He was depressive and manic, you know, in in turns. And you know, he really did walk twenty miles a night through the dark city of London, dark streets of the city of London. Yeah. I think trying to deal with his demons mm. as well as look for inspiration, which he which he did. And in many ways, Wollstonecraft in a similar similar way has this sort of energy and this drive that's partly fueled by her emotional life and her rage in some ways, you know, begins at rage against her father, who, whom she considered a despot, Yeah, you know, and a tyrant and kind of her anger at the way her older brother, Ned, got all the love and all the attention and all the money. Mm. She really formed you know, her beliefs about injustice and, 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 and fairness from that early experience of her own family. But one of the one of the places that she finds solace and comfort and connection with a world larger than herself is in nature. And so in the very, you know, in the very first episode, the story that that she tells of her life in the novel, I start her walking. You know, mm. she's walking and she's walking fiercely and furiously. And yeah. and I really feel that, you know, her drive throughout the novel, I wanted to communicate that. But she also does suffer from mental illness. I mean, I think, mm. you know, she had crippling anxiety, sometimes crippling depression. Mm. And she also dealt with it, you know, by trying to heal herself in nature and by yeah. walking and being in the world. Right. So her father was a farmer. Was the treatment of her brother and the preferential treatment given, was that something that was different from even how other families treated sons and daughters differently? Or was she just outraged uh, at the system that was in place and that was being followed by her father? First of all, her father considered himself a gentleman farmer, but he really knew nothing about farming. Mm. He'd come from the silk weavers of Spitalfields. His own father had 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 money, and he inherited money, but he didn't want anything to do with the silk weavers and didn't want to live that life. And so he kept kind of moving the family around from one venture to another, mm. be it farming or speculation or this or that. And he wasn't good at any of it, and he really squandered his inheritance. They had less and less money and more and more children. And so, you know, he was an unhappy and angry man and took it out on his children. But I think Ned, her older brother, Ned, receiving the lion's share of love, attention and money was the way it was at that point. Mm -hmm. And Mary Wollstonecraft knew instinctively that it was wrong, mm. that there was absolutely no reason. Ned wasn't smarter than she was. Yeah. Ned, Ned wasn't better or more capable. And she really rejected the idea as well that he would be seen as educable. Ned is worth putting in a proper school. The girls, the, you know, the Wollstonecraft mm. girls can go to a day school where they really learn almost nothing, what they could learn to make them marriageable. And again, Mary just had an instinct that that was wrong and that boys and girls have the same minds, the same capacities, the same souls, and that they should be educated the same, which is an absolutely revolutionary idea, but it informed her life and her politics. Yeah, it seems to be when we look at writers 
women writers, especially, they'll say, oh, so-and-so had a father who encouraged her to come to his library and, and read whatever book she wanted, or he happened to be one of the few people who believed that it was important for girls to receive an education as well. It almost seems to just be the luck of the draw if somebody happened to have a, a, a father who was willing to expand in that direction. And she worked as a governess and taught school, and it just seems like she was maybe someone who had this hunger for an education that was she did not happen to have uh, the the good fortune of having someone in her life who would expand that to her and and do you think that's where she got her her convictions and her courage and her her early drive when she was writing things like thoughts on the education of daughters I do think so I mean she was jealous of the education that Ned was getting and yeah. believed herself completely capable of exactly the same work. Mm. And she wanted to, and she was hungry to learn. But I do think she had a substitute figure in John Arden, who was the father of her friend Jane Arden. And mm. Jane Jane Arden is when she's a teenage girl, and it's sort of you know around she's thirteen, and it's around when the novel begins. And Jane becomes kind of a, an obsession of Mary Wollstonecraft. She really wants to be Jane's friend and be in her circle of friends. And, you know, Jane comes from a much more respectable middle-class family, but it's her Jane's father, John Arden, who gives her lessons, who gives Jane Arden lessons and is, and is a scientist mm. and a thinker. And he, and they do invite Mary into their lessons. And I think that that is life-changing for her, mm. not only because she has a first experience of a man who treats her as if she does have equal value and is capable of exactly the kind of learning that boys at the time are getting. Yeah. But he's also, he, he has high regard for women, period. Mm. And she sees, even though she already believes that the, her future is a future without men, without marriage, without the tyranny of men. She sees, I think, the possibility of what having a mentor can mean and yeah. what it can mean, you know, in a young girl's life to, to be educated yeah. and to be introduced to the world of ideas and the world of books. And so that at age 13, 14 has a huge influence on her going forward. And so I had a lot of fun inventing John Arden. There's yeah. a, there are, you know, lots and lots of letters between um, that, that Mary Wollstonecraft writes to Jane Arden and they're teenager, you know, they're embarrassing and, yeah. and sort of cloying. And, but the, her relationship with John Arden was, you know, a wonderful thing to explore as a mm. novelist and really be able to make up that relationship. Imagine what that was, what it looked like, how it worked and what kind of influence it had on her. Right. So then the leap she seems to make, and I'm, I'm curious if this is giving her too much credit or enough credit, but my understanding is that her development was that she not only was arguing for education for women just as a matter of fairness, but that she made the compelling argument that education in general should be radically reformed to include women and that that would benefit all of society. Absolutely. And she's so, so far ahead of her time. Yeah. You know, she, she really envisions a world where men and women have a, a, an entirely different kind of equality or any kind of equality, really. I mean, she thinks that, that women, you know, she still believes, I think, in the role of wife and mother, even though she doesn't believe in it for herself mm -hmm. in the beginning. But she deep down believed that civilization run by men had utterly failed us mm. and that it was time that women had a chance, not necessarily a chance at having power over men, you know, her famous quote, I do not wish women to have power over men, but over themselves. Mm. And I think that she believed that what women could bring to the running of the world would be substantial, would be important and different. And I, you know, I think one of the, certainly one of the themes of, of the, of the novel is equality and power and her navigating not only her ideas and, and being forceful in making the argument for women's equality, but also navigating equality and power in her own life. Yeah. But I think that there's another theme in the novel, which is 
really Sense and Sensibility. And I think when I started writing it, you know, I assume Jane Austen made up Sense and Sensibility, that it was, you know, it was sort of very much of that moment. I didn't realize that Sense and Sensibility was being debated really throughout the 18th century mm. and was, you know, in many regards, the tension between the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason and the move toward Romanticism. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that Wollstonecraft believes in reason and thinking and is influenced by all those philosophers, important 18th century philosophers. But she also is compelled by her own emotional life, by her inner life. And she thinks that those, you know, emotions or sensibility, that what women should work toward is a kind of exquisite sensibility that's refined by reason. Mm. And that those, that those were things that were missing in the patriarchy, really, in the world run by men. She is kind of a bridge between those two worlds, although she died maybe before she saw the second half of it come about. She's sort of a bridge because we connect her through her daughter to the later romantics. Uh, Originally, she was in the circle with Thomas Paine and William Godwin and William Blake and William Wordsworth and friends with all of those people. We sort of jumped over her experience in uh, observing the French Revolution and the liaison she had with the American and, and kind of the failure of that or the breakdown of that. But it does seem like if you're looking to understand that transition, which is happening right around the time of Jane Austen, Mary Wollstonecraft is shining some light on that transition. I think that's true. Absolutely. I mean, when I stop and think about the time that she lived in I and mean, to live through both the American Revolution and the French Revolution, yeah, you know, in very short order. Right. And, you know, and of course she moved to Paris. I mean, even though it was, you know, at a point when the terror was beginning and, and she was at risk as an, as an English woman, she really put her own neck on the line. She wants to go and be a kind of journalist, be a kind of, you know, observer of the revolution. And she's an observer of how the revolution falls apart in many ways, but she really believes in the revolutionary ideals. Yeah. And especially in the beginning, when there's the intention to make women equal citizens. She really believes in that. As far as the American Revolution, I think this is so interesting. Inspired by many of the American revolutionary ideals, she also believes that the American Revolution didn't go far enough Mm. and that the American experiment would fail because the Constitution basically codified slavery. Mm. And she thought that it had sort of in the invention of America it contained within it the seeds of its own demise. Right. And, you know, and I think 260 some years later, she's being proved right. Yeah, I was going to say the jury is still out on that, I think. Exactly. But she, you know, even then, I mean, she um, eschewed eating sugar because of its relationship to the slave trade. Mm. And she, she was really an activist. I mean, she's not, you know, not only is she an incredible abstract thinker, but she's, but she's an activist on the ground and in her life and in reality. And so I really, you know, enjoyed writing that, like writing someone who's not just living in her head, but is living out her heart, you know, yeah. with, with kind of all her power, her own personal power and, you know, disappointments and injuries and, and, and difficulties. But she's a, she's an extraordinary character to me. And I found her just compelling in every moment. Was she paying a price for living in that way? Always. She paid a price. In fact, I think one of the reasons that people don't know Wollstonecraft is because when she died at age 38, 11 days after giving birth to Mary Shelley, Her husband, her then husband, who's also a writer and philosopher, William Godwin, was moved to write a memoir of her. And he Mm. wanted people to know about Wollstonecraft as a great philosopher and a writer. But I think he was also still, he was grieving. And he he wanted people to have the full Wollstonecraft experience as he had. He really had never known anyone like Mary, who had this huge interior emotional life, as well as was a great conceptual thinker and writer. And so he writes a memoir, not only about her work and her thought, but including her depression, her trembling anxiety, her love affairs, her sex outside of marriage, 
her two suicide attempts. And people didn't know her out-of-wedlock child, Fanny Imlay, who's who's the daughter of Wollstonecraft and Gilbert, the American Gilbert Imlay. Mm-hmm. And people did not know that. They they had believed, they had been led to believe that Wollstonecraft and Imlay were married, but they weren't. And so even, even some people close to her were scandalized mm. by all of this information. And, and the English government, the conservatives in England pounced on it because they always wanted to dismiss Wollstonecraft and tell people, turn away, don't read her. She's insignificant. She has nothing to add to this conversation. And so they really pounced on this memoir as evidence that Wollstonecraft was nothing but a whore mm. and she should not be read or believed or followed. And so really for, for you know, over a hundred years, her legacy and her reputation are buried. And it isn't till, until roughly 1929 when Virginia Woolf writes an essay and basically resurrecting Wollstonecraft that people start to pay attention to her again and turn back to her writings. And then again in, in the 1970s and, you know, second wave feminism, people again find, you know, rediscover Wollstonecraft. And so she keeps, she keeps sort of coming back and coming around. It's almost like the Wollstonecraft cycle where, you know, she disappears for a while, but she, you cannot keep her down. And, she, you know, she's as relevant today, I think, as she was then. And so it was, you know, thrilling the idea that you could introduce Wollstonecraft, give her in flesh, blood and everything to the people who know about her, as well as introduce her to a new generation of w- women coming of age who right. are thinking about these things. So where do you pick up her story in your novel? The difference between Love and Fury and the Dickens novel, Mr. Dickens, is that with Dickens, I was looking at a six-week episode in his life when he writes Christmas Carol and playing with those six weeks of time. With Wollstonecraft, I was trying to encapsulate her entire life. Hmm. And I really didn't know how to do that in the beginning. It was daunting and there was so much material in the biographies about her, you know, written by the English giants of biography, Claire Tomlin, Janet Todd. They're incredible and they read and they read as page turners. So I was sort of looking at the cracks and the crumbs that they leave you. Here's this thing, maybe she and Fanny Blood were lovers. We don't know. Mm. Um, or what happened between her and the artist Henry Fuseli, what really happened. And so I was looking at at these moments in her life that we would consider, in screenwriting, you would consider them plot points. And even in novel writing, people talk about plot points. But I needed I needed a frame to tell to, for her to tell her story, mm-hmm. and so I thought, well, you know, the eleven days, the sort of intersection oh. between Mary Shelley's life and Mary Wollstonecraft's life, they're both alive for eleven days, and each of those days could be a chapter of the novel, and each day there would be a midwife, Mrs. Blankensop. Through her, in alternating chapters, Mrs. Blankensop, you're experiencing what's going on in the room, in the mm. household, yeah. each of those days. And then the other chapter is in the voice of Wollstonecraft telling the story of her life to her newborn daughter, who in the beginning is ex- not expected to live. The baby, they think the baby will die. But then halfway through, Wollstonecraft realizes that she's the one who's dying of purple fever. Mm. And so, you know, she begins to tell the story of her life to sort of fill, you know, fill her own newborn, fragile newborn with life force and, you know, her own love and fury. And then is telling the story of the legacy that she wants to leave, knowing that she herself is dying. Right. Having the frame of those 11 days really allowed me to kind of zero in on the 11 most important, most formative plot turns and twists in her own life that really alter her trajectory and make her who she is, yeah. make her the very Wollstonecraft that we know today. Right. I think we can all kind of imagine doing that. If I were in that situation and I had 11 days to pass along to a child or or an infant in kind of a spiritual sense, I would quickly think of the 11. I might have, you know, one day devoted to my childhood and, and one day where I was talking about my experience in college and one day where I was going through my marriage or, you know, the different events, different relationships or different formative periods. It does not seem like an artificial or that unnatural of something that something someone might do as a way of organizing their thoughts about their own life as they're reaching the end of their life. 
Exactly. And when I teach writing, I, I say, you know, every, everybody here, if, if I gave you pen and paper, you could come up with 10 plot points in your own life. You know what they are. Yeah. But, but I think the way to think about them that's, that's useful is that we know character because we put them under pressure and watch them choose. Hmm. You know, you tell the moments where Mary Wollstonecraft has to make a decision. And in making the decision, because she's under pressure, she's forced to decide, but the decision that she makes is formative and transformative and propels her into the next, changes her trajectory and propels her into the next thing that will also become difficult and, and will become, you know, the pressure will build. And that's, you know, that's sort of storytelling 101. It's, you know, it's about desire, wants, needs, obstacles, escalation, resolution. Yeah. Finding those moments was really a lot of the work. I'm a big outliner and plotter before I, before I put pen to paper, but also a lot of the joy of finding, finding the shape and finding those moments in her life that I really do think make Mary Wollstonecraft who she was. Did you find any that were under the radar, so to speak? Uh, I'm thinking even though, you know, you can imagine a lot of the things that we've talked about would be kind of the encyclopedia 11 moments of, you know, affair with Captain Imlay and marriage to Godwin and writing of a vindication of the rights of women and that kind of those kind of events. Did you find any that were conversation or an epiphany or anything that would be a surprise to readers? Hmm. Well, I think there are. I mean, you know, it's also it's a confusing, it's a confusing answer because so much of it is what I made up that I now believe in as true. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, <laughs> instead of fine, let's say, uh, did you invent any? To go to go back to Fanny Blood, I think this is a good example because in all the biographies, Fanny Blood was. Wollstonecraft met probably when she was 17 or 18 Mm -hmm. and she just fell in love with this person, Fanny Blood, who was a botanical illustrator. They were best friends for, for a long time, for years. And they were devoted to each other. And they both sort of had these tyrannical drinking fathers and, you know, they started to plan a life together that would be a life without men. And they, they imagined what that life would be and how they would live it. And there's certainly, they, they start a school together. Unfortunately, Fanny is tubercular and she ends up dying in Lisbon after she gives birth to a baby who dies. And Mary's there with her when she, when she does die. And Mary really never recovers from that loss. Mm. But the biographers can't say that they were lovers, that it was more than a friendship. But there's certainly, they drop crumbs Mm-hmm. that it might be that they were and and that they imagined you know not just a life together as friends but a life together as a couple yeah. in, you know in some 18th century way which is al- almost unimaginable to us now um that you could imagine that for a novelist that's an incredible gift to be able to try to imagine what that relationship was yeah. how they came together how they felt about each other what were the components of the relationship and what happened when, you know, at some point Mary, because Fanny has tuberculosis and she's getting worse, Mary has to encourage her to marry Hugh Skase and go live in Lisbon, even though it will break both of their hearts. Mm. And so it was really important for me. It was almost, it was almost as if, you know, I could give the gift to them of the possibility of that relationship. And these characters become very alive in your mind when you're writing. And um, to explore that, the possibilities of of that relationship, you know, while while still being ambivalent. I mean, I'm sorry, not ambivalent, a little bit ambiguous about it, while not coming down, you know, squarely on one side or the other. But I certainly suggest the possibility that, they considered it. They were there. They were living in, in you know, in, in that possibility that they would also be lovers or were also lovers. Mm. So that's, I think that's an example. It's a very under the radar thing. There are certainly scholars who would love to prove that they were lovers because there's, there's that suggestion of clues 
in different places. But as a novelist, I had the freedom to really explore what that relationship was. I don't want you to spoil the book if this is part of it, but would you say that Mary Shelley did exhibit the life force or or spirit of her mother that uh, you're suggesting was passed along during these 11 days? Very much so. Mary yeah. Shelley was really obsessed, I think, by both her mother's absence and her presence. Mm. And they still lived, the, God, the Godwin household, which she grew up in, still lived very much in reverence to Wollstonecraft, yeah. even though her stepmother, Mary Shelley's stepmother, was not did not think kindly about about that. But she, but Mary grew up. Mary Shelley grew up reading her mother's work, and it, in fact, it's said that um, Percy Shelley also considered himself an acolyte, a Wollstonecraft acolyte, and that they would go to her grave at Old Saint Pancras Church and you know literally read aloud from her mother's work, and th- that wow. they that their courtship was sort of because they both declared themselves Wollstonecraftians and they wanted to live that life and live her ideals. They were really committed to it. And so it's, you know, 16, basically Percy Shelley, she loves with Percy Shelley, even though he's married to another woman and having, who's pregnant with their second child. Mm. Mary Shelley wants to escape her life and live freely and live the life that I think her mother argued for, for women. Right. And Godwin, Mary Shelley's father, and Mary Wollstonecraft's husband, you made it sound like he maybe inadvertently uh, harmed her reputation with his book. But in general, he was a good steward of her, right? He would have passed along to Mary a a sort of appreciation for her mother or a a living memory of her mother? I believe that William Godwin did continue to revere Wollstonecraft throughout his life. But yeah. again, he married a woman who didn't feel that way. And oh, she was I a see. difficult she was a difficult stepmother to um, Mary Shelley and to Fanny Imlay. So I but he but he's you know, he's a little bit more of a shadowy figure. I mm. think I I'm not sure people really know what to make of Godwin, you know, as the widower, widower of, Mar- of Mary Wollstonecraft. But clearly, he, being, being a writer and a philosopher himself, they had a library. He believed in educating his daughters. He did do that. And he knew that Wollstonecraft would, would want that to be the case. And so yeah. they are educated and they are exposed and they continue. They're in a circle of people, writers and poets who continue to come to the house and sort of pay, you know, pay homage to Wollstonecraft and to him. So I, I think that the, the both things are true. He's trying to give his daughters what he believed in for women and what Wollstonecraft would have wanted for them. Mm. But he's but he's also hampered, I think, because he marries a woman who's purported to be awful right. and really, you know, is not interested in having in in pursuing the Wollstonecraft legacy and living under her shadow. Right. And to expand it out a little further than Mary Shelley, which seems appropriate given Wollstonecraft's uh, interests and her writings, how optimistic was she about the treatment that girls and women would receive in society? The things that she was calling for, did she think that they were likely to come about in her lifetime if, if she were to live a little longer than she did? Or or do you think she'd be surprised by how long it took or or that it, it was basically over 100 years before uh, anything like what she's calling for was really implemented? When I get this question, it almost brings me to tears, honestly, mm. because I think I think she believed that it was possible. For instance, as I said, at the beginning of the French Revolution, you know, one of the ideals of the revolution is that women, women would be equal citizens in France. And she thought she was seeing that in real time, Right. that that was really a possibility that it would, that it would happen. And it's one of the reasons she was moved to go to Paris and be a witness to the revolution. But it quickly, you know, as, as we know, there's always a backlash, right? Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And this backlash happened to be a hundred, 150 years before women even, you know, get the vote or begin to be educated in a way in the same way that men are. And so I think, I think both things are true. I think she would now look around at the world and think so much of what she argued for and believed in has come to pass. And she would also be 
absolutely stunned at how little has changed, Mm. that it is still a patriarchy, that it is run by men, that it is run by white men, and that women are fighting to make the same amount of money, to be in the workplace, to have childcare so that they can be in the workplace. I think so often that she would be, you know, rolling in her grave over some of the stuff we're, we're still talking about that I, I personally find shocking that we are having this conversation. And I'm, you know, I very much agree with Wollstonecraft that, you know, we've seen enough of a world run by men and it's failed us and it's failed, honestly, the planet. I think it's time to move over and, and give women a chance. I'm reminded of, of arguments that James Baldwin would make when he was asked to go slow. And he would say, go slow usually means don't go. You know, look at look at where go slow has gotten us. It's been, you know, how slow do we have to go? It's been 100 years. What are you doing to make it happen while we're going slow? And in some ways, the fact that Mary Wollstonecraft was calling for these things when she did is sort of a reminder that these are not brand new ideas that it's just taking a little while to roll out, that there have been arguments for these things. And it it shows how strong the backlash has been, I guess, that it's, even though there were voices calling for it, uh, it's not like those voices all began in in 1985. They were there in (laughs) 1785. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Wollstonecraft was a, a complete radical for her time. And she is so far ahead of her time. And she scares so many people mm. and, you know, and offends so many people because of what, what she's calling for. And I think it's, you know, again, it's one of the reasons why the conservatives in England pounce on this memoir by Godwin after she dies to say, oh, you know, let's write her off. She's nothing but a harlot. And, a, you know, she was a hyena in petty, petticoats. And um, let's just dismiss her as having any importance whatsoever. And it's successful for a hundred years. Mm. That is a successful campaign to bury Wollstonecraft and her legacy. And so, you know, the four, the people in power will never give up their power voluntarily, ever. And I think that's, I think that is where we are. You know, it's very disturbing to me to find ourselves here, but it also, I think, makes the argument that we can go back, you know, we can reach back into 1790, the late 18th century, and read Wollstonecraft and see ourselves in that mirror and see where we are. And one of the things that Virginia Woolf says in her essay when she writes about Wollstonecraft is that, you know, she's still to read her is to is to feel her active and alive and still walking among us that her her experiments and living are still important and, you know, and and, and can inform our lives now. Mm. I think she matters. And she, mm. you know, she'll keep mattering. Yeah. as we go on and fight this fight for, for real, true equality. Right. Well, this will not be the last time that we've let Virginia Woolf have the last word in, <laughs> in an episode. Thank you so much. The book is called Love and Fury, a novel of Mary Wollstonecraft. Samantha Silva, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Samantha Silva for joining me today. Her book is called Love and Fury, a novel of Mary Wollstonecraft. You can find it at bookstores near you. Great gift for those book-clubbing friends of yours or for solitary readers as well. My thanks also to Marin, the hiker. Good luck on the trail. Whenever I write the word trail, I think of the word trial because they are so close. And in your case, Marin, that seems to be true both in the alphabet sense and the connotative sense, too. Keep those bloodthirsty mosquitoes at bay. And please keep your feet dry and untrenched. Okay, we will be back next week with some Baudelaire. That's some good creepiness for the month. I'm getting ready to make a bet on myself, so stay tuned for that. And we might squeeze in a little Oscar Wilde this October. I'm trying to generate some bonus episodes for you guys. One a month. Maybe we can start with that. We have to look at De Profundis. What an amazing work that is. Around the corner in November, we'll have some remixed classics. We're updating Treasure Island and Little Women for a modern-day audience, recognizing the diversity that has always been around in the real world but hasn't always made it onto the published page. Both of those are great. Great talks with great authors. So what else? 
Mike Palindrome. Oh, and my goodness, a special episode for the holidays, our gift to you. So subscribe now and tell all your friends. It's free. Don't keep us as your private little secret, please. I beg you, share widely and often. We would like to be the private little secret to millions of people. (laughs) That's the thing about private little secrets. Usually, they're not as scalable as this, but in this case, the case of a podcast, they kind of are. You're not going to hear us blaring from speakers at the shopping mall. You won't hear us as the background in movie soundtracks. We will still just be in your ears and your mind, just me and you, dear listener. Those other millions of people can't interfere with that. Even billions, it's still going to be me and you, so don't worry. Go tell your billion friends. I'm Jack Wilson, promiscuous, podcast-wise, but faithful. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.